In his song, Happy, Pharrell Williams proclaims, happiness is the truth. On Tribute to Happiness, we speak with guests who are putting this truth into practice, sharing their stories about what happens when happiness becomes a genuine focus. Tribute to Happiness is brought to you by Iceland's Chief Happiness Officer, Heather Svein Bjornsson. Hello and good morning. This is Iceland's Chief Happiness Officer. One does not get appointed as a nation's Chief Happiness Officer. It's a choice. It's a choice about how I want to serve my country and community, about addressing something critical that's missing in society. Listening and gratitude are things that are missing, especially in our work lives. Add those two things and positivity and productivity take off. Leave them out and work becomes routine, performance mediocre. Let's explore some new ideas and thinking about happiness at work. Let's also look at happiness at home and happiness in life. In this episode of Tribute to Happiness, I am talking to a scholar from Wales in the United Kingdom. Isn't that correct? That is correct, yeah. As much as we want independence at the moment, we're still part of the UK. Yeah. How would life be if if you were independent? It would be uh, weird, wouldn't it? There, I mean, there's a lot of talk. Scotland is very unhappy with part being part of the union. Wales is um, independence popularity is growing and growing, especially since the pandemic. Um, I mean, it will be quite interesting. I think. Um, England um, or Wales and Scotland are more self-sufficient than they've possibly ever been. But I think, you know, the English population contributes quite a lot. You know, the UK split into three parts, but uh, an overwhelming majority of that is English. And so I think, you know, decisions are being made in London by the English that the Scottish and Welsh aren't happy with. So who knows? Who knows? I suspect referendums will continue in the UK for quite a while, for the rest of my life, probably. So we'll see. Everyone wants to pull everything apart. So we'll see yeah. how that goes. But should we then introduce your, like, let people know who, who I'm talking to so we can, like, drop the politics and go go yeah. ahead? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's, we're talking about happiness. Happiness yes. and policy yes. go hand in hand. So, um, so my name is Gethin Nadin. I am uh, a, an award-winning psychologist and a best-selling HR author. My book is called A World of Good, Lessons from Around the World in Improving the Employee Experience. And that book, book focused quite a lot on well-being and subjective well-being, which psychologists refer to as happiness, as your listeners I'm sure know. And so it's really focused on how do we create better workplace cultures that people can thrive in and how do we create work to be a force for good in the world and not just a way of us uh, earning a salary. Um, and I'm also director of employee wellbeing at an organization called Benefex, who is a, um, a global employee experience technology business. So we help loads of global brands around the world to develop technology that improves wellbeing and the employee experience. Uh, and I've been doing this for about 20 years or so. And you are only 29. How like how can you do this? <laughs> yeah. the, the advantage of me going grey when I was a 19 is I've always looked older than I am. So, uh, <laughs> but one thing is interesting that your name is Gethin. Yes, which is a Welsh name. So it's Welsh for dark skinned or swarthy, 
which your listeners can't see my face, but I am neither of those things. No, yeah, to- no, yeah not at all. But it is funny because my name is Hearing, so that's uh, uh, it's literally it rhymes in a sense. So Gethin yeah. and Hearing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's. Um, I think Nadin was a name given to families in certain parts of France that were responsible for celebrating or looking after Christmas decorations and setting up Christmas in villages. So. I like to think because Wales has got a history with pirates and my name is dark skinned or swarthy that I'm some kind of Christmas pirate mashup. And that's it, what I'd like to be known yeah. as, I think. Well, you have a rich, dark beard on your face, so you must be a sentence from uh, what was the infamous, uh, infamous uh, <laughs> pirate of them all. I hope so. Yeah. But you, you mentioned also, I, because I, I was telling you, and, and you pointed out you had this uh, talk uh, on YouTube, I found it, and really interesting, because you were talking about how people, it has always been there, like happiness, yeah. and, and, and companies have, in a sense, had it. But if you go through your like what your findings and stuff about happiness at work, and how we can relate to them or with your angle on, on the take. Like, what is it that you were most surprised about or with in your, like, when you were writing the book or in your field of expertise? So I guess it, for, for me, it was backing kind of, you know, I've been at Benefex for 10 years now and I've had exposure to lots of big brands and how they're dealing with developing the employee experience and boosting employee engagement, focusing on employee well-being. And I kept seeing that lots of companies were making the same mistakes and not really getting this stuff, not really getting to the heart of how do we make people happy at work and happy to be here. Um, And then, you know, every time you read a HR magazine or a HR book, it was always heavily focused on what did Google do? What did LinkedIn do? What did Microsoft do? Very US centric and very focused on businesses that have got a lot of money who can be very experimental. And so I knew from the research I'd already done at that point, lots of the data that I'd read, that when you really peeled back to what makes humans happy and what do humans want from life, that hasn't changed in centuries. And lots of the modern practices we see, and I guess things like mindfulness is a really good example. You know, mindfulness is everywhere. It's seen as this kind of new thing. But Buddhists have been doing that for centuries. You know, mindfulness is not a new practice. We've taken an old practice and digitized it. And I think when you start to peel back the layers of what is it people wanted, you know, there's a a Welsh social reformer called Robert Owen, who I talk about in the book. And this was a guy that took over mills in the north of England, um, kind of cotton mills, and started to realise that, you know, after eight hours, their employees were not working as hard as they were. They were exhausted and, you know, 12 hour shifts were too long for people to be working, to be productive. And so this guy decided, I'm going to take this down to eight hours and and establish an eight hour working day. And he did lots of things like decided to put shops on site so people could buy their groceries at cost price so that their pay would go further. And he built nurseries so people wouldn't be worried about their kids. They know their kids would be looked after whilst they were at work. And, you know, this guy was told that he had wasted his life. One of the most prominent uh, economists in the UK at the time, on his deathbed, said, you've wasted your life just as this man was dying. But Henry Ford came across to the UK to see what this guy was doing and realised he was onto something. 
took his ideas back to the US and in all the Ford factories established the eight-hour working day, which is now why most of America and most of the world works to an eight-hour working day. So again, this idea we have at the moment, which feels really new age around, should we give people shorter working days and all the experiments in Sweden and Northern Europe around, you know, should we actually give people shorter working weeks or reduce their hours to increase their productivity and happiness? These aren't new concepts. People have been looking at this for a long time. Um, and I think when you, lots of the work I do around employee well-being, if you really peel back what people want from work, it very, very commonly um, always boils down to they want connection with other people. So working with people who we like and we enjoy working with, who challenge us and support us. We want to work for organisations where we feel like we belong so that we feel like our contribution is valid and is, is uh, appreciated, that we're recognised for the effort that we put in and that we feel some kind of purpose. So we feel like whatever our job is, whether we're working at a checkout in a supermarket, whether we're picking up um, people's rubbish, whether we're working in a, uh, you know, a major bank doing investments, people want some kind of purpose. They want to understand what part do I play in this big machine? And when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the night, can I feel comforted by the fact that I, I played my part and I had good fulfilling work? You know, work is good for us. It's good for our soul. And so when you think about that, you know, when we talk about employee well-being, that's become a very commodified uh, industry. You know, this idea that you're upset or you're sad or you're struggling. I want to buy this stuff to try and solve that problem. So, you know, you're, you're not happy in work. You take a break from work and you go on holiday. You practice mindfulness because you're stressed out. You take time off because you're burnt, burnt out. And so this this idea that we've created environments where people feel like they just have to then go and buy stuff to solve problems, I think has driven this idea that well-being is this problem to be fixed rather than a state of mind that's obviously closely linked to our happiness. You know, we all want to be, if we're not well, we're not going to be happy. Um, so those things are closely linked. So I think when we talk about well-being at work, when we talk about engagement, and the employee experience, we are talking about how do we create happy people. It's funny when you're talking about because uh, the th like mindfulness, older generation they maybe feel like it's mumbo jumbo. But when I think about in the back in the days, people went to church to reconnect or they they to to find some inner peace. So it's just like another side of the coin. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think ch church is a really good example. I'd never really thought about this until you just said that. But, you know, the, in the in the UK in particular, the church was the centre of most societies. Yeah. So for a long, long time, whether you were religious or not, the church was your place to go. It was where, you know, the, the vicar or the, the people that worked in the church would support you. They would feed the homeless. They would support society. It was the physical centre of most villages and towns. It was the place where people went at Christmas or to celebrate, you know, whether you're whether you believe in religion or not what you know christianity has got a thick history through most of europe and the church is where people are born and baptized and where you're married and where you die it's, you know all our major parts of our life are centered around the church and as people have kind of decoupled religion and new religions have come into different countries and more and more people are atheist i guess you've torn apart communities in the sense that the church has no longer become that kind of thing that held the fabric of a, of a society together. Um, and I think when you look at some of the most modern research into kind of who do we trust, you know, the Edelman Trust Barometer measures trust in institutions across most major industries in 50 odd countries. 
pretty consistently for year after year for almost five years, the employer has been voted as the most trusted institution in the lives of 73% of people around the world. So I think there's this really unique opportunity where, you know, actually, could that force for good be replaced? Could the employer become this place of support in the same way that the church went? I think that's a really interesting idea. But as, as you mentioned, the, the thing about belonging uh, at the workplace or, or belong in life is just like how you we all want to fit in and do stuff and, and be important or make use of ourselves. <clears throat> how, how is it in your studies or, or, or when you're looking at things, is it, can you see a difference in the older managers or leaders or is the young people as bad or, or does it turn the leadership does it turn into fear when they they don't have the control they don't feel like they ha- are in control or like what is it that why is it then we like i have been talking about this happiness here with my like my friend and boss uh, at the restaurant and he's just like ah oh, what a happiness and he he just like but he he i know he knows it is important but he he it's like it's mumbo jumbo Mm. So I, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it does feel pretty kind of when we talk about this stuff, it does feel pretty kind of liberal, quite left wing. You know, this it's very soft and fluffy stuff, isn't it? Taking care of each other, putting our arms around each other, looking out for each other. Um, but, but, you know, there is a lot of evidence, a lot of very, very compelling evidence that people need purpose at work. And and that doesn't mean they have to work for a purposeful organization. They don't all have to work for charities or organizations that are doing good. Purpose is kind of, I know what I'm doing. You know, as I mentioned before, work is good for us. We know when you compare people in work to people out of work, work is good for us psychologically. Work is good for our mental health. Um, and I think if we didn't have to work at all, if we if all of us had the same income and all of our food and housing was paid for, people would still go out to work because people have a sense of purpose. People learn things at work and that improves their well-being and happiness. We get challenged at work. We have positive experiences. We meet people. So work is very good for us. Even if we didn't have to work to put a roof over our heads and to feed our bellies, we would still work in some capacity. Uh, and again, we can look back hundreds of years to know that you know work has been good for people. You look at millionaires, You know people like Jeff Bezos, people like Elon Musk. These are people that don't ever have to work again yet they continue to work because work is delivering something for them, for either their happiness or their purpose or their legacy. Um, What's quite interesting when you look at age differences is nowadays those under the age of 30 show that purpose is much more important and their purpose is linked pretty strongly in most cases to social good or sustainability. So more than ever, younger people want to work for organisations that they see as pushing the dial forwards on creating a better a fairer and more egalitarian society um but actually when you look at some of the data for older employees that seems to be changing as well so we're doing away a little bit with this idea that as you get older you become more conservative and introspective and actually you become more philanthropist because actually the more you get your own house in order the more you want to kind of then help others um and i think the interesting thing with getting older and purpose, and I've seen this with my parents who are now both retired, is their purpose was so tied up in work that when they retired, they both started to struggle to understand what is my position in society because my father was a prison officer for 35 years. So my father had a 
a lot of control and influence over other people and a lot of respect. And then he retired and he and society just saw him as an old man that wasn't working anymore. And that can be quite difficult for people to manage. So I think finding your purpose is much more about just just work. It's kind of, you know, why are we all here and what, what legacy do I expect to leave behind? And so um very, very closely tied to well being, very, very closely tied to our happiness is why are we here and what will we be remembered for? Um and for lots of people I think you know, even if you're doing a job that society might consider as a bit menial, like um, being a rubbish collector or working at a checkout in a supermarket, you can still find your purpose in those jobs. You know, we saw during the pandemic that people who we thought had pretty insignificant jobs, like delivery drivers and food and grocery people and, you know, all those key workers, we started to realise, actually, we've taken for granted and paid poorly and not looked after these people mm. that are keeping us going as societies and so i think they have probably found their purpose and there's again a lot of research to suggest that people working in industries we will now refer to as key workers value their jobs more than they did before the pandemic so you know one of the good things to come out of this awful pandemic is we've reappreciated some of those people and helped them to understand their own purpose how, how is it in in the uk about is having a work a virtue like are you are you is that your destiny because here in iceland we have talked talked about that uh, work is virtue because you have to you have to work and then you become somebody and then you la 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 because if you're slacking then like nobody likes slackers uh, how how is it because as you mentioned your father who who took his pride in the work as for 35 years and then people always, when they have been working for so long, they are always, the, the tendency is to say, yeah, I will enjoy when I retire. I will enjoy when I retire. But you never know when to, because you can die tomorrow. Like, you, you never know. Why, 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 is it, why is it that work is so important in the moment that you want to enjoy in 10 years, 20 years, or whatever. Why, why can't you enjoy life as equally as you are working? Or do you know what I mean? Like, uh, how I do, do you see How do Nothing. you see it? Uh, and I think this is a really, really fascinating point that you've raised, because part of our struggle with well-being and happiness is we are fighting against capitalism, right? We are, we have grown up in a world where we have said to people, you've got to go out and work. You've got to play your pace in society. You've got to pay your taxes. So we've drilled that into people for centuries that if you aren't doing those things, you're some kind of social outcast. So in the UK, you know, broadly, people look down on those who claim state benefits who don't work. You know, you're not actively participating in society. So we're judging you for that and we're shaming you for that. Um, and we're making life difficult for those people in many instances. And so I think what is really interesting to see when we look at the trends of younger people at the moment is they're almost having two careers. So your listeners have probably heard of terms like side hustle. So what you tend to have now is younger people who are doing the job that is paying their bills. So the job that will pay their mortgage or their rent and give them the money to do the things they want to do in life. And then alongside that tend to be doing a side hustle. So you have people who are you know, um, delivering pizzas um, day in, day out, but in the evenings are making YouTube videos where they're rapping or singing, and that's growing an audience and starting to generate income from them. I've got friends who are, 
working for digital marketing agencies in the daytime, but are baking cakes and selling them online in the evening. And so there's a growing um, almost epidemic of younger people, but in particular, using capitalism to fuel the stuff they actually really want to do with life, which might not necessarily pay them enough to be able to, uh, to, to pay their rent and mortgage. And I think I'm seeing lots of friends now on this tipping point of that side hustle is almost making enough money that I can now slack off that job and start to do the thing I really wanted to do. So really interesting movement of younger people seeing I'm going to use capitalism to get me the career or the job or whatever I want or to support me so that on the weekends I can sing in a band or do whatever it is that um, I get I get joy from. And I think that's really, really fascinating to see. But how is it? Because now it's fascinating when, when you, as an outsider from the UK, when you're looking at uh, like the Crown or Downton Abbey or whatever it is, yeah. because you always see the the people who had means like the lords and whatever like and and i all and then it was more interesting for me to see the people who was working like in the basement or or whatever like the staff because i was just the people in downtown abbey it, it looked like they changed their clothes every third three hours because it was just like how boring life is that like what did they do when it was just so how has that, do you think that has had an impact on the working life after it, it shifted? Because you have this, you have this uh, weird stages in the UK yeah. where you are Lord or Countess or whatever the, all the names are. I mean, so Downton Abbey is probably, you know, there are some of the series of Downton Abbey are set kind of 1920s onwards. And that is kind of post-industrial revolution where there was a bit of a boom. We were kind of recovering from the Second World War. We needed more people to work. So you know, the Roaring Twenties was a good time for people because the economy boomed. There were more opportunities. And there are some episodes of Downton Abbey where you think that the lower classes, and I'm using that term in inverted commas, who were working underground in the kitchens and you know, as kind of maids and butlers, etc. You had some of those characters in that program who wanted to do better. They wanted to become teachers. They wanted to become solicitors. They wanted to kind of make themselves better. But the class structure at the time was pushing these people down and saying, no, 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 you work underground and you serve the other classes. And as that lifestyle of Downton Abbey and living in those big houses and having those titles and being linked to the royal family, etc., they became massively unsustainable because old money gave way and these generations of people just couldn't maintain these big houses. And so it's quite popular now in the UK that you'll have somebody with a Lord's title who could be living in a one bedroom flat in central London. And there are some examples of that where this old money is no longer sustaining a modern life. So the class structure in the UK is quite interesting. But I think what you started to see in the 1920s is a continuation of what we're seeing now, which is people who are saying, Do you know what, we've for too long, you've afforded uh, opportunities just to rich white men and now actually you have black women and um, parts of the lgbtq plus community and women of color and all these people who are pushed down and marginalized by society taking the opportunity to step up and say do you know what actually no we we, we don't want to be repressed anymore we want to be able to do these jobs you know a black man can become president of the united states of america you know we've broken that ceiling and we have to continue to push that um and i think you know, back to the Edelman Trust barometer, you know, 
um, Charles Edelman, the, the, the guy who um, owns that company, one of the things he believes on the back of that research is because that trust in employers is so strong, employers actually have an opportunity to change society. And this is in the YouTube talk that I did that you were referring to, where I genuinely believe that the impact that the workplace can have on wider society is going to be quite significant. And we can see that when we can see how the workplace around the world is driving the removal of the stigma of mental health issues. Workplaces around the world are driving more diversity and inclusion because they're the people that are promoting black people to their board and making their um, boards full of women and promoting women to their CEOs. The governments aren't doing that. The governments are doing a really poor job of having diverse cabinets and parliament members, but organisations are doing a much better job, albeit there's lots more work to do, of encouraging that diversity. So I will see, again, I think the workplace is driving a lot of that stuff where, you know, I've had customers who've said to me before, I think they were a consultant firm, and they were telling me how they had a profile of what a successful employee looked like in their organisation, and that was an Oxford or a Cambridge graduate in the UK. Mm-hmm. So if you came from a very well-established red brick university, we call them, where you've had a very, probably a wealthy upbringing and gone to a very expensive and kind of top tier university, they were like, they're the people we recruit. They're the people that do well in an organization. Um, they're the people we want to recruit more of. Um, until they started to have a change in the HR team, where one of the HR team was a very established well-experienced person but didn't come from a private school education hadn't gone to oxford or cambridge hadn't gone to eton or anywhere like that who started to believe that we needed some neurodiversity in this business we needed more and more people from working class backgrounds to work with us because some of the businesses they were now consulting with were new startups that were doing really well where the founders of those startups came from um state state state-sponsored schools and stuff didn't come from private education and what they started to realize is when they did some uh, analyzing of the data, they realized that actually their idea of what a successful employee looks like hadn't been true for 20 years. So they'd be actively recruiting people from these red brick universities because they were like, They're, that's who does well in our business. When actually they were finding plenty of their working class partners uh, who came from backgrounds and some who didn't even go to university were performing just as well or better. Um, and so I think we are slowly trying to demolish that that kind of class system that's exa- existed in the UK for such a long time. And there's plenty of evidence that employers are doing that, which I think is obviously great to see. But how, how is it in the UK? Because I know here that I have been working in the with youth since 1990, although I'm only 29. Um, <clears throat> how, how is it that... that it's always this, you, when you are young, you want to get some job, you want to be a lawyer or a solicitor, or you want to be a, some kind of business, uh, economics, because there lies the value. But when you are working in kindergarten, or you're a teacher, or like they are the low, at the lower end, and they, as in case of the NHS, the people who are really in the front line, they are tired, they are like everything, but, and they don't feel appreciated. That is the case here in the health system because the nurses are just, they are so tired and worn out that they, they just can't, and they, they really don't think they are valued and they don't get the pay. Whereas a banker can get some ridiculous bonuses. Sure. Whereas we, the common people, we just look at it and say, why is 
a banker more valuable than than me who is working with the youth for example have you seen some something about that or or are people young people going more into I want to do what, as you were saying, maybe you would just, you have maybe answered the question that they are maybe going in that direction. I, th- I think younger people now realise, and it's a realisation that many of us only come to when we're a bit older, that, you know, if you're chasing the money, um, if you get a nice house and you get a nice car, you go on nice holidays, more money means you get a nicer house, a nicer car, nicer holidays but kind of what's the end goal with that the accumulation of wealth kind of we've seen that time and time again in the uk it's kind of what's the point you know you look at like i meant some of the billionaires that i've mentioned I, I, what's the point in becoming a billionaire i'm not saying i wouldn't want to be but i don't understand how you'd become a billionaire and then just continually grow and grow and grow and people accumulating you know, jeff bezos alone could give away most of his money solve world hunger world poverty and still be a billionaire you know the the maths kind of stack up in that way and i think people are seeing that and it is making them sick and i think young people now there's lots of data really big study that came out last year which i was talking about on a canadian podcast recently where most young people now don't believe that if they work hard they will live a successful life so they don't believe in capitalism anymore they believe the cards are stacked against them you look at our country in the uk the parliament is run by a lot of people who grew up with and were friends with our prime minister. Lots of big businesses are operating in the same way. So I don't think most people now believe that if I just work hard, I'm going to get the rewards I want. So that is making people think, well, actually, I'm just going to focus on trying to live a, a life that is well lived. And I think if you look at the NHS in the UK, I think that's a really good example of it. They are underpaid. They are underappreciated. But the number of people wanting to go and work for the NHS has increased in the last two years because people want to do this job. They want to help people. They want to contribute to society. They want that purpose and legacy, despite the fact that it's going to be an unforgiving job and a very difficult place for them. People still are gravitating towards that. People still want to make a difference. And this might sound quite romantic. And I kind of I appreciate this probably sounds very kind of wishy-washy to some people, but I do feel like there are swathes of people and I see this with friends and I see this with people I work with who are just on this idea of I just want to make world a better society and I think where it will really start to change is when you look at the impact that automation and AI will have on the workforce because lots of those menial in inverted commas jobs that people do are going to get replaced so we know lorry drivers are going to get replaced by automated drivers and automated vehicles lots of the service industry is going to be replaced so you're going to be able to go to a restaurant and the plate's going to get brought to you with the food on you're going to go to a shop like amazon's shop and go where there's not going to be any members of staff there at all you do your shopping and you leave and we're obviously well on our way to some of that thing happening and so what starts to happen is with all those kind of manual unskilled jobs that start getting replaced those people get displaced and and typically what we tend to see is that those job demands end up creating new jobs for people. So it's not like people are out of work, there'll be new jobs for people. But lots of the expectations of experts and futurologists um, around the world are seeing that if we start to replace a lot of this stuff with automation robots, there will be jobs where having a human at the end of that job becomes a really, really important part of that service. And one of the things that experts are, are talking about at the moment is the healthcare industry. So the healthcare industry requires empathy 
and we are not at the point at the moment where a decent amount of empathy can be taught to a machine or a robot. If my mother's in a care home and she's going to die, I don't want her last moments to be with a robot. I want her last moments to be with a human mm. that is empathizing and making her feel settled. And so all of a sudden, I think you'll start to see a future where healthcare becomes a really valued role. So all of a sudden, people working in the NHS becomes a, you almost flip society around and you start thinking, wouldn't it be great if we worked in the NHS and what a great job that would be? Whereas at the moment, we're still in this, wouldn't it be great to be a hedge fund manager? Wouldn't it be great to be Wolf of Wall Street? And so I think, you know, uh, I, I applaud anyone who's trying to uh, fall down capitalism and I, I've been a product of capitalism, but I think we've got to do better society. And I think more and more people are realizing that actually, you know, what are we here for? And the pandemic has given this two years of quiet reflection where lots of people are saying, you know, what am I doing this job for? And why am I giving this company eight hours of my time? And if you'd again, look at all the data about the great resignation and this idea that 40 to 50% of people around the world are going to be quitting their jobs in the next 12 months. One of the reasons why is people are changing careers completely. People are moving away from those employers that don't take care of their people and are gravitating towards employers that are doing social good. So employers that take diversity and inclusion seriously, that take sustainability, that are considering the positive impact they have on society. People are gravitating towards those, but they're also gravitating towards industries and jobs where they're giving back to society and helping more people because, you know, what is the point in lining the pockets of Amazon even more? What's the point of lining the pockets of Tesla? It's just, what are we achieving by doing that? Yet when you look at some of the work that people like Unilever are doing and their massive, massive, impressive plans they have for sustainability and you know trying to eradicate poverty in any country that they operate in why don't we go and work for those companies and although it's slightly capitalist because they're selling product but they're doing good at the same time so would i rather do marketing or product design at that company than an amazon or tesla i would say people most people choose that over the others mm. It's funny because I mentioned you I, when I I saw the the video of your talking. I I sent you a mess, instant message. I said like, oh my god, we could talk for hours, <laughs> and now thirty minutes are already gone, and we haven't even gone through your like you are a volunteer your volunteer work at Be the Ripple, isn't isn't it? Be the Ripple, yeah. So I mean, related to all we've talked about, you know, Be the Ripple is a, a movement that was set up by a lady called Joanna Savannah uh, in the UK, and that yeah. was to bring more kindness to work, to make sure that we were being more diverse, that we were looking after each other, we were supporting the happiness and mental health of the colleagues, and so work was becoming this force for good rather than just a way of earning money. And so that movement does things like we're working on a book at the moment. We've done some conferences about kindness at work. But part of that is showing there's an ROI to this. More caring, inclusive businesses perform better. So you know, when you start to eradicate bullying, when you start to eradicate misogyny when you, and racism, and you start to create better environments, people want to work in those companies. And when people are happy and healthy at work, they deliver better customer service, they design better products, they create better businesses and Be The Ripple is trying to get businesses to realize that this isn't some lofty ideal. This is a real way of creating a sustainable, successful business in the future. It is fascinating to to listen to you because as you were saying this about the Be The Ripple uh, community, I was just, what about the patriarchy? And, and uh, like, is it, where is it that the 
why, as you have been saying, that ages ago there was this man from Wales who went up north and bought these companies and stuff, but where is it that, why is it that we can't break through? Why is it that we can't just take the step and say, okay, we want this, we will do this, we will have the kind of, why do we have to have an organization like <laughs> Be The Ripple to implement kindness or we don't want bullying? Like what, why? I think we, part of the problem is at some point we've started to fetishize work and being busy at work. So I mentioned Wolf of Wall Street and Gordon Gecko. you know, there was a time in the 80s kind of, we'd gone through this post-war boom, you know, um, we'd, we'd created an environment where, you know, you were judged by your success. And if you didn't drive the right car, you didn't earn enough money, you weren't successful. You know, if you, if I said to somebody tomorrow, would you consider yourself successful? People will go straight to monetary terms. They'll start to think, you know, do I earn enough? Is my house big enough? Because those are the metrics that capitalism has driven into us to say that's successful. When I would love to say to somebody, are you successful? And their answer be, I've got friends and I'm love and I'm loved. And yeah, I do think I'm successful because I'm a kind person. I do the right thing. And again, I think this is turning, but we are trying to undo centuries of marketing and the way societies have developed that basically say your worth is falsely attached to the money that you've got. And therefore success is attached to that when, you know, we still do it now. We glamorize entrepreneurs when we should be glamorizing people that give up their weekends and go and help people who need help. You know, we shouldn't be glamorizing Elon Musk and Jeff, Be um, Jeff Bezos. We should be glamorizing Ben and Jerry's and Paul Polman from Unilever, the people that have used their permission to try and drive agendas. Regardless of what, you know, people like Ben and Jerry, you know, they've really put their neck out on the line before most people did in America and basically said, you know, gender equality is an important thing. We want to support same-sex relationships, so we're going to start donating our profits. And obviously that mightily pissed off the right wing of America. But they sat there and said, you know what, this is the company we want to be. And if half of America decides they're not going to buy our ice cream because of it, so what? And you've seen Patagonia do the same thing and plenty of these emerging businesses across the world who are basically unashamedly saying, this is the world I want to live in. And if you're not on board with that, I don't care if you buy my products or not. Mm. And I think, you know, you look at ESG and sustainability and COP26, which is the big kind of sustainability conference that's happening in the UK this week. All of this stuff is driving the idea that actually CEOs and big businesses need to understand this stuff a bit more, that consumers are, and the data is telling us, moving away from businesses that aren't doing social good, that aren't taking care of people. And the pandemic had a big impact on that. You know, across America, consumers were saying to big brands, you've got to pay sick pay. Sick pay is not mandated by American government, mm. but consumers were saying, this is not right. If you're telling somebody to self-isolate, you've got to pay their pay for 10 days. You need to take care of these people. We're in this together. There's a pandemic. You've got to take better care of your people. And if you don't, I'm not going to buy from you. And we saw the same thing in the UK where actually businesses made the wrong decisions and they made front page news and people all over social media were saying, I'm not going to shop there anymore. They don't deserve my money. I'm going to go to the business that does take care of people. So that S in ESG is playing a big part in consumer activity as well. And now we're starting to see that play a big part in investor activity. So I think it was 94% of the top 600 investors in the, UK, in the US earlier this year said, how you treat your employees 
is going to be something they're going to look for before they will invest with you because investors and shareholders now know that actually taking care of people is good business. So you know, it's not the right way for us to get to that point because if we're just following the money because now that makes business sense, I'd rather people did it because it was morally the right thing to do. But I think the ends justify the means. And I think I see more and more traditionally capitalist businesses now deciding we have to put the employee at the centre. We have to support them and what they need. We have to support them through the things that will happen in their life. And I think that can only be a force for good and, and that will drive happiness because we're giving employees what they need to live a happy and successful life. Oh my, I'm just like, I, I can't, like, you say so many things that you, you I want to talk about, but I have to, <laughs> like, I, uh, we have to move on. So I'm just thinking, getting and happiness at home. Like, what, what is it that you, how do you see happiness at home? Oh, what a good question. Um, so I'm somebody who has tied a lot of my self-worth um, and my value as a person in the work that I do which is good when work goes great. And I people read the book and people listen to podcasts like this and message me on social media and say, I've loved what you said. That gives me a lot of life. That gives me a lot of purpose. Um, but the, 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 the opposite side of that is I, I can get burnt out really easily. I can be over-engaged. I can get to myself to the point where if work isn't going great, I put so much in my work basket that doesn't really work out well for me. Um, so like many people during the pandemic, I've almost tried to make my life a bit smaller and tried to place higher value in the smaller things. Um, and again, loads of data and research in psychology uh, and behavioral science around value in time outdoors, value in time with animals and people. Again, all this really provincial small stuff we can all do, which is actually what makes us happy and try to move away from those trappings of modern life like social media and money and all that kind of stuff, tried to get back to the tribe and fire of what it's like to be a human and the things that are important. So that's what I try to do more of. I'm not always successful in doing that, but that's what I try to get happiness from. Oh, like, is it, are you okay? Most people, they talk about happiness, uh, that maybe is happiness in life, I don't know, like the, they, they go out and enjoy the nature or walk or trying to see something because I think the rush is so big that people have stopped seeing the small things or the, the those things but <clears throat> like when, what do you do like do you read or do you listen to a book or are you on netflix all the time like what do you consider things i mean i, I do all of those things i think if you ask me to what is the one thing in my life that really makes me happy yeah. outside of the relationships with people i've got i would say it's traveling seeing other cultures, meeting people from different backgrounds, seeing what other landscapes look like. Huge, huge part of, if I look if I look at my bucket list and the things I want to do with my life, a lot of them center around seeing things in the world. And some of my best experiences that have a special place in my heart are based on the traveling. So Iceland is one of them. So you and I talked briefly about this before we started recording, but I've been to Iceland quite a few times, traveled around most of the island, so seen most of at least the outer kind of rings. I've had some really poignant moments when I visited Iceland where I've stood in front of some really impressive waterfalls and realized how glaringly insignificant my problems and my life is compared to the rest of the world. Whether I'm alive or not, those waterfalls will carry on running and they don't give a shit whether I'm alive or not. <laughs> and I think and I think there's something in that. There's something in understanding that, you know, we are here for a short time, just enjoy it. You know, you don't have to focus too much on 
being successful and stuff like that because what does it really matter when I think back at all the things I've enjoyed in life the ups have really been focused on when I experienced stuff for the first time and and when I had you know when I ate really nice food and when I had a good interaction with somebody in that country and just had a laugh with that person um so that's I think where my happiness lies so if you have had a fermented shark sheep head or sheep testicles you like really appreciated it <laughs> um, I haven't had the shark fin. I'm a big fan of sharks, so I don't fancy eating them. But um, in Iceland, I turned down whale and puffer, um, puffin, and I only had reindeer because reindeer was farmed, so I thought that would be okay for me to eat. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, I've had the, the best <clears throat> lobster I've ever had has been in, um, in, uh, in Reykjavik. Um, some of the best times I've had in my life genuinely have been in Reykjavik. I, I had the time of my life the two times I've been there. And I, it sounds really romantic to say, but there is nowhere else that I feel like I've left a piece of myself there. Yeah. I will always feel like there is a bit of me left in Iceland and I will always want to continually go back there and, and visit that bit of me that I think I've left there. And I've never had that connection with any other country. So as soon as this opportunity to speak to you came up, I was delighted because it's, uh, for many, many reasons, a country that I hold dear to my heart. I think the people, your outlook on life, the the books read per capita your politics um the view of the, i just think you do so many things right i think it's uh if people really want to understand how to run a country i think they can learn an awful lot from iceland thank you but how how is it happiness in life like no thinking about you and you are a scholar and you have this book and you are like seeing how happiness and well-being and that employing and stuff how did your father see it like did he see that you have an interesting job or you are making a difference because the clashes of the ages like like if he has been a prison guard for 35 years like how so when, so when i was younger my dad used to always say to me and my brothers try not to become a man of success but become a man of value and i think it's an albert einstein quote but he used to say it to us over and over again he never got to do. He he never got. To, he didn't take the opportunities he wished he had. He had lots of regrets. He became a prison officer because me and my brother were twins, and they needed the money. He needed a stable job, so he moved out of a, a steel factory and moved into becoming a prison officer. And he, I think, he really struggled with that that change at one point. But he had to do that for his family because we needed the money. Um, and that quote always stuck in my head. And about. Five or six years ago, I was out for coffee with my mum and dad. My dad went to the toilet and my mum said, quick, before your dad comes back. And she put, took an envelope out of her purse and passed it to me. And in what looked like child's writing was just officer aid in Cardiff prison. That was all that was written in the envelope. Read the letter and it was a letter to my dad from an ex-prisoner basically saying, you really looked after me. Thank you for taking care of me. I know what I did was bad. I'm going to try not to do it again, but you've inspired me to try and live a good life. And I sat there and I'm tearing up now thinking about it. I read this letter. My mum was like, your dad didn't want you to see it. I told him you haven't got it. And so I took the letter and I was like, I'm going to take that. And then my dad came back and I put it in my pocket and my mum forgot all about it. Two months later, it was Christmas. So I took all of my dad's service badges that he'd been given by the Queen for 30, 20 years of service in the prison service. And I got those framed up with that letter and had engraved along the bottom, try not to become a man of success, but become a man of value and gave him that on Christmas Day. And we all fell about crying. And I think my dad has always drummed it into me about just that he wants me to do the right thing. So I think what he is proud of is I have helping companies create workplaces where people are cared for, 
uh, and really cared for. And that's absolutely what drives me now is this idea that if I can convince a 100,000 person company to do the right thing by their employees, I could positively impact 100,000 people's lives. I know work can be detrimental to your mental health. I've had that experience. And so I want to make sure that work is only a force for good in people's lives. And I guess really intrinsically, that's what drives my happiness is making a difference in that way. And that is happiness in life. Oh my God, your father is a hero. Mm, absolutely. It's lovely to hear. But then uh, as the last thing, I always, <laughs> it's a fun thing. I always ask my guests to say, is a surprise, you did not know this. Okay. <laughs> there is, I always try to find an interesting Icelandic word for uh, people to say. So I would really um, love to say, ask you to say the word reithjól. 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 That is a bicycle. Oh, really? <laughs> talk about I mean, pres that... preserving the Icelandic language and then like, because we were talking about how, how the Welsh and uh, how it, it's getting more and more English. Uh, <laughs> Because we have new names for everything, so that's that's funny. So Reithjól, that's bicycle. So you have tried to learn a little bit. But Kevin, right now, I, I just, as I said to you in the message, I really, and now we have almost talked for an hour, it's just unbelievable how life sometimes just greets you with people that are fascinating to talk to, and I'm just in awe. And and the be the ripple and Joanna like it's just like I I I can't thank you enough for for like giving me this time of your life to just be so wow I, I, I and now I want to I, I have to buy your book so <laughs> just thank you very much for bring uh, being here and, and talking to me and and I hope for all the best and and I hope to see you in Iceland. As oh yeah, I, well, I, 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 yeah. I can sense that you are, are you are maybe the brother from a lost mother. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I am. I, I've been a couple of times to the Airways Music Festival. As soon as the pandemic is kind of over, we'll be back at that festival. I think. And um, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed this. I really needed this today. I needed this opportunity to speak positively to somebody. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you very much. This has been the Tribute to Happiness podcast. Tune in for next week's episode. You'll find us on social media.